Due to circumstances beyond our control, neither Henry nor I mentioned banana oil or plasticine. We apologize to those who are keeping score at home with your Henry Hyde bingo cards. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I'm your host, Jay Arnold. In this episode number 77, I'm joined once again by the Dean of the Hobby, Henry Hyde. Henry, how are you? Hi, Jay. Uh, Thanks for that epithet, the Dean of the Hobby. I love the idea of it, but I've been reading too much Terry Pratchett, I think. and My idea of what the Dean of the Hobby would be up to is probably slightly different. So uh, I am... Fine. Thank you very much indeed, Jay. Uh, Very good. Uh, We've had a weekend of kind of royal celebrations here in the UK because it was the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. And so there have been all sorts of parades and street parties and stuff, none of which I've taken part in. I have to let your listeners know because I've been a busy boy doing other gaming related stuff. But uh, I'm, I'm absolutely fine, Jay. Thank you. How are you, mate? I'm I'm doing all right. I had a a busy weekend myself. Uh, had my regimental ball this weekend. Um, oh, four hour drive away, um, and then on my return home yesterday, after some very intense revelry. Uh, well, I stopped. Oh, it was actually held in a town not too far from where I went to college, and so all right. I met up with an old college buddy of mine for breakfast and then had to go to a visitation uh, of a, the son of a former first sergeant of mine and then come home. So that was, a. I left Marion at noon and I got home spot on six. So it was a long day of traveling yesterday as well. And now here we are fit and rested both of us after the tumultuous weekend you actually got to do some fun stuff. I just drank a lot and was sad. So <laughs> Okay. And drove and drove and drove. Ten hours driving, Henry. Ten hours driving the last weekend. Yeah, well, I know what that's like because that's what I do when I go to a show like Partisan up in Nottingham. It's probably a fraction of the distance that you traveled in that time. Uh, but uh, the traffic here means that you still end up driving. Um not very far, and it takes a long time. But there we mm-hmm. go. Because so. England's like what twenty eight miles across, something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's tiny. It's it's, it's microscopic, mate, compared to where you live. <laughs> That's right. It's the size of a postage stamp. <laughs> <laughs> now, again, with with the platinum jubilee, that was that was the anniversary of the queen winning a, a caber toss or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, or that's that's when she took over Castle Ravenloft as her own. Something like yeah, that. something like that. I, I'm fuzzy on the details, mate, but it was, yeah, go with your story. It's more entertaining <laughs> than the reality. She took over way before I was born. That's, you know, and that's, you know, now I'm getting old. That's like, yeah. whoa, she's really stayed the course, bless her heart. Yeah. And she's had some ups and downs. So, you know, good honor. What can yeah. I say? 
I think that's the, how uh, most most people feel in the UK is the Queen, she's all right, you know, leave her alone. Uh, but some of the people around her have attracted some attention in recent years, shall we say. Um, and, of course, she's got her oldest son who is waiting in the wings like some sort of ghoul, uh, <laughs> wait, waiting to take over when that moment comes. But she just seems determined to carry on and on and on. I don't know what comes after Platinum in terms of Jubilees. Uh, I don't know, uh, something radioactive, perhaps. Plutonium, <laughs> Jubilee... <laughs> I think that the the problem is with what's going on in the in the Ukraine at the moment. Putin might be determined to give us a plutonium jubilee, but let's, let's mm. not dwell on that, shall we? <laughs> let's not. Let's not. So anyway, we are here. We are here to discuss your latest magnum opus, the wargaming campaigns. Recently, oh well, I, I guess it's not officially off the boat yet, is it? Uh, well, I keep checking the Pen and Sword website, and the the the, the official publication date keeps shifting. And I, the latest I've noticed is it's the end of this month, June the thirtieth, is what they put there. Okay, because um, I so I can only assume that literally <clears throat> it's taken longer for the boat with, to arrive from India. Uh, who knows? Maybe the Suez Canal was bunged up again uh or maybe because of the weight of my book it it made the ship list to port or starboard not sure which and so it was going around in circles for a while i don't know jay uh but obviously it's obviously taken longer than uh, they first said to me first of all they said oh yes it'll be out end of april beginning of may and then it became oh middle of may and then it became end of may and then it became beginning of june and then it became middle of june and now it looks like it's going to be the end of june but to be fair to them even once the book arrives in the country and it's on the sitting on a dockside somewhere um given the state of play in our channel ports at the moment um i can't imagine the amount of paperwork it would take to actually get a book from uh, a container on a dockside somewhere actually into a bookshop somewhere um so they're having to allow time for those kind oh, sure. of you know administrative delays and form filling and goodness knows what um and obviously because of the size of my book i wouldn't be at all surprised if customs and excisers asked to inspect it saying that can't possibly be a book you must be importing bricks of gold or something because of the weight of them or lead um so or yeah plutonium. it's Oh, plutonium, indeed. Uh, it glows in the dark. My book glows in the dark. Did you know that? Uh, little known fact. Wargaming campaigns glows in the dark. And um, so, not a true fact, ladies and gentlemen, sadly. I don't want people writing to me saying, my copy of Wargaming campaigns didn't glow in the dark. It's a lie. Well, here's here's what most people don't understand. It only glows in the dark when everyone in the room has their eyes closed. Yes, that's right. It's like a tree that falls in the forest, makes no sound if there's no one there to hear it, right? <laughs> Similar kind of deeply philosophical principle. Yes, right. so Wargaming Campaigns, mate, it'll be out and in people's sweaty hands very soon. And I think the thing is people have waited so long for this book, Jay, that, you know, a couple more weeks here or there, they're going like, nah, who cares? Um, it, it'll get there. And I just hope, that after all this waiting, they're not disappointed. Obviously, that would oh, be a bad thing. 
I'm sure that's not the case. And speaking of sweaty hands, I did notice that in your pictures from, uh, was it the partisan show that you went to? It was, yeah, partisan. Yeah, you had a, a nice plastic slip cover over the book to, <laughs> to keep oh, yeah. it safe from those sweaty hands. I'm sure. Sweaty that, hands and COVID precautions as well, of course, sure. Jay. And uh, I'd imagine when, when you got the, when you finally took the book home, there was more than one mustard stain on it. <laughs> some cheeto dust as well mustard stains and uh greasy burger marks and all that kind of baked bean stains those those kind of things uh no actually people were very very good and only a few people actually spat at it so um <laughs> no it was actually the uh th- that partisan show which was a couple of weeks ago now wasn't it goodness me 22nd of may uh how time flies um it was brilliant i mean it was just lovely i love the partisan show anyway you know i confess it's my favorite show of the season i find it's got the friendliest atmosphere and the best looking games and it's just a nice i like the venue as well the newark showground venue uh, there's enough space and light that you can kind of breathe. Uh, this year, I gather they had record attendance this year. Um, I can't remember the exact number. But Lawrence said that you know, for what is supposed to be kind of a smallest show, they had eleven or twelve hundred people through the door or something, which is oh nice. Yeah, that's that's amazing because, and I did notice a couple of points during the day. Whoa, this feels more crowded than I've ever seen it here um i mean obviously it's not the same scale as kind of salute sure. which gets i don't know five ten thousand through the door on a, in a good year uh but for a show of that nature um the attendance was fantastic and it had a really nice atmosphere and i was absolutely thrilled with the reception i got um you know for the book um and i'm i'm glad i managed to persuade pencil to send me a copy so i could take it because um, I think it was good for people just to see, oh, it really is real then. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's mm-hmm, not yeah, just yeah. a figment of your imagination, Henry. Um, and the first comments were always, of course, like they had been for the compendium. Joe was like, oh, wow, feel the heft. Because oh, sure. it does weigh close on two kilos like the compendium did. Um, and then uh, people you know, were flicking through it and obviously a bit bewildered because – as I promised, um, and perhaps they didn't believe it I, I, when I said this, I planned to and and made it an extremely comprehensive work covering every aspect of campaigns that I could think of at the time and over the course of, you know, eight years of writing the blooming thing, um, including contributions from other people, including my wonderful team of beta readers. Huge thanks to them. Um, and it also includes a chapter that, um, Nick Skinner, Two Fat Lardies, he was one of my beta readers. Uh, lovely, lovely guy and extremely knowledgeable about wargaming. And it was really great to have him and some other people of his ilk on board as beta readers because I wanted people who would point out, you know, all the blotches as well as the good points. And he he kind of um, contacted me and said, oh, Henry, um, have you sent me the complete manuscript here? And I said, yes, I have. He said, um, no, I'm sure you've left something out, Henry. Um, I, I'm sure you've, you wrote a chapter about air power, didn't you? And I just turned white. And it was like, I, 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 I thought I had. He said, no, mate, there's nothing here. So I went literally put the phone down and went scurrying away and looked through the manuscript. And said, 
oh my God, how do these things happen that you can leave out something so glaringly obvious? And so uh, at that point, I sat down and wrote a chapter about air power. So that chapter only exists in the book, thanks to my mate Nick Skinner of Two Fat Lardy. So bless his heart. Um, and um, yeah, it's... It's one of those things also when you've, you've, you're you're doing a project that's very, very extended and it becomes sort of disjointed. You've been working at it in fits and starts because obviously, I don't want to bore your listeners, Jay, everyone out there by now knows I had a few adventures <laughs> over the sure. last oh, few yeah. years. Just the least. Uh, right. And uh, so it, there was some evidence, you know, that as someone who's been studying psychology avidly for the last couple of years, wow, the brain can completely uh, omit uh, an entirely important thing and yet somehow convince you that you had done it. So there we go. A bit of uh, psychology and neuroscience going on there. You know, my, my brain obviously needed rewiring at that point. So I did. I sat down and, and banged out this chapter on air power, which um, I'm pleased to say uh, got his approval and the approval of the other beta readers. So, um, yeah, there's lots and lots in there, Jay. And, um, uh, yeah, as I say, the, the reception it got at Partisan was fantastic, basically. Um, Lots of people saying, well, I can't wait to have my copy. And bless their hearts, a number of people said, oh, well, now I can see it actually exists in the flesh. I'll go off and pre-order it then. <laughs> you know, so it converted some doubters. Um, well, us true believers ordered it before it was a physical thing. So You did. Bless your heart. And now, there were many of you, Jay. I Pencil tell me that there, there were, you know, several hundred people who did precisely that which well, i'm i'm you know relieved about obviously uh, and slightly gobsmacked about i mean that's a huge act of faith that presumably based on people's having bought and liked the wargaming compendium they thought oh well the campaign follow-up if it's the same quality should be a good one um and um so yes the the the, the, the pre-order numbers have actually been really quite gratifying enough to put me into the top 20 of pen and swords lists for a book that doesn't even exist yet you know oh, great now, so, now speaking of well you you're starting to say so so i'll let you finish the thought go ahead no no no, no. i've forgotten what i was going to say so you go ahead jay fair enough um speaking about your publisher pen and sword for a moment if i may now i don't want to sound like i am insulting their their readership or them as a company, but I find it fascinating that there is not only a publishing company willing to publish a certain type of book, but there's mm -hmm. also an audience for a book such as wartime trains of greater Putney. <laughs> you know? And the, yeah. the, the type yeah. and level of detail and the minutiae that must go into the, you know, the publishing of, you know, great war gardens of upper Buxton. <laughs> One of my favorite books. God bless them. They wouldn't print them if people didn't buy them. So, you know, yeah. good on them, I suppose, but it's just, <laughs> yeah, I, I just find it amusing whenever the, the pen and sword email comes out and they're talking about all the, the things coming out in the next month. <laughs> 
No. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, one of the things that um, people have to remember is that the publishing industry has changed a lot in the last 20, 10, 20 years. And so a lot of what were smaller, extremely niche publishing companies have been bought out by bigger companies. And Pen and Sword is now one of those bigger companies in the niche publishing kind of area. Mm -hmm. uh, Pen and Sword obviously started out as just pen and sword doing military history stuff. But they also, I can't remember the names of the companies they've taken over since, but they've taken over, you know, a lot of stuff about naval publishing, naval warfare, naval architecture, uh, marine history, and railways and mm -hmm. uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, and more besides. And so this is where those kind of things come from, is that they were probably just little one-man band publishing companies that at some point realized that they can't cope with the modern world, they can't cope with the distribution needs, they can't cope with dealing with Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all these kind of things. So... Companies like Pen and Sword and, and Pen Sword aren't alone, of course, because Casemate is another company that has bought up other smaller publishing houses internationally, not just in the UK. Um, and so they kind of uh, distribute, the, so they kind of keep the people on doing the publishing bit, the, the kind of accepting manuscripts, checking manuscripts, and you know commissioning authors and stuff at the lower level. But then as soon as that moves up to the tree and it actually has to get out into the world, this is where Pen and Swords, you know, acting as kind of big brother steps in. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is now common throughout the publishing world where, mm. you know, it's, it's a very, very cutthroat business out there these days. And also, things like you know the growth of the ebook market has been exponential in recent years. So some of these other smaller companies would struggle to deal with you know getting stuff ready for ebooks and Kindles and that kind of stuff. So, Pen and Sword, alongside military history and war gaming, I mean, it was already doing uh, printing stuff as you know to do with um, kind of uh, history for war gamers painting and modeling books, that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, they also do much, much more obscure stuff. So the people who are interested in uh, railway sidings of Putney in the, uh, at the turn of the 20th century are likely to find something to entertain them, Yeah, as you say, Jay. And good on them. You know, I, I definitely think that, whenever you have a niche interest, if whatever that may be, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that the internet's been good or bad for, however you want to look at it. Yeah. You know, finding niche interests and yeah, others that share in your interests, you know, war gaming, for example, uh, and we won't go into that at the moment because that's a whole discussion in and of itself, you know, webs, you know, war gaming websites and, the, and whatnot. Mm. But, um, so since, since we are kind of talking about pin and sword in particular, and every monster has an origin story, right? And so yeah. we should probably discuss the origin story of wargaming campaigns. I, I presume it came on quickly on the heels of the wargaming compendium. Someone said, well, Henry, have you thought about a second book? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, fairly obviously because in the compendium, I, I'm looking at it, it's up on my shelf there, but my, I, I'm going to need to replace the shelf because it's bent terribly underneath the weight of it. Um, the, I, I'd included a chapter, hadn't I, on campaigns in uh, the, the Wargaming Compendium. And um, because people have known me, you know, as editor of Battle Games and then miniature war games with Battle Games and uh, over the years have heard me bang on about my Wars of the Faltinian Succession and that kind of thing. I had a number of people who said, oh, you're going to write about your campaigns and you're going to write about your Wars of the Faltinian Succession. And the fact of the matter is that's very lovely of them to want to know more about that. But you, it would be a, a very, 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 very niche book if it was only about the Wars of the Faltinian Succession. And I've already kind of done a PDF pamphlet thing, what would you call it, a thick magazine um, that people can buy from my PayHip site about the Wars of the Faltinian Succession with the playing rules and, you know, the bits and bobs about how it was created and so on and so forth. There is more I can write about the Wars of the Faltinian Succession, but it's not the kind of thing that Pen and Sword would commission as a book, to be honest. That's the kind of thing that is so obviously, yeah, that's going to be self-published at some point. Um, but um, I, on the wider subject of campaigns, uh, it occurred to me that, crikey, well, when was the last time a book just about wargaming campaigns was actually published. Well, there was Don Featherstone's, Featherstone's books about a uh, book about wargame campaigns back in 1970. Was it three or four, something like that? Great book. One of my favorites. I've got actually two copies up on my shelf. I'm pointing. You can't see me today because we're using Zemcaster, but I'm pointing up at my shelf, Jay, where I've got two copies, not one, two copies. One of them signed uh, of Don Featherstone's Wargaming, uh, Wargame campaigns. Then there was who? The Charles Grant self-published a book about Wargame campaigns back in 19... 90 something i think it was um then oh gosh we're scratching our heads a stuart asquith did a little thing about war game campaigns back for was it um, um imat publications again that would have been when he was editor of practical war game was so crikey the 80s early 90s something like that um and then uh, also back in the 90s, Games Workshop did a fabulous book called The General's Compendium. Um, it was the, actually it was the, the Games Workshop USA team uh, over your side of the pond, Jay, I think put that together. A gorgeous book, obviously focused on Warhammer fantasy battles, uh, that kind of thing, but um, loads of information, stuffed full of photographs, loads of the kind of thing they're really good at, like making terrain and loads of linked scenarios and, you know, gorgeous photos fabulous thing um way out of print now but so if any of your listeners find a copy somewhere buy it because it's a fabulous thing but anyway so we're talking what 20 years at least since anything really serious had been written about wargaming campaigns so i thought oh well there's a there's a gap there isn't there to bring things up to date because here we are in the last uh, you know 
certainly in the last couple of years, I had to rewrite sections of the book as I was writing it because of the pandemic and the fact that people were starting to do all kinds of stuff online during the pandemic because they couldn't see each other face to face. And lots of that stuff was ideal for campaigns. So it was kind of an evolving thing. It started off as an idea about, oh, yeah, I'll write a book about campaigns. And like the compendium did, it just grew and grew and grew mm-hmm. and grew. Because as soon as you sit down and start thinking about, right, well, okay, what do we actually mean by campaigns? And the opening chapter talks about this. It's like, gosh, when you start thinking about what we mean by a campaign, wow, that encompasses a lot, right? It encompasses, yeah, first of all, could be any period in history you know anything from ancient times at the pyramids right up to modern times in afghanistan or syria or something like that it would encompass you know uh, uh it could be historical it could be fantasy it could be sci-fi uh it could be uh, anything from campaigns like dungeons and dragons like i'm doing stuff at the moment which is to do with individual characters right through to you know the kind of stuff that charles grant used to love and i've always loved which is you know huge armies marching across the countryside bashing into one another having immense battles epic battles you know and and cities and entire nations rising and falling so you know gosh the sheer scale can range from something really tiny that could cover a time frame of a single day, let's say, right through to something that would last, you know, World War II, months, years, you know, these things just can go on and on and on. And of course, as we've already mentioned, you've got not just what's happening on land, but also what's happening at sea, and also what's happening nowadays, certainly in the air or in outer space. Oh, yes, sci-fi. Gosh, what's happening intergalactically, Jay, right? So, I just started to realize kind of like I had one, I had that classic, Oh my God kind of moment and realized that this was going to be a big book. And at one point it looked, it looked extremely likely. Well, it was going to be even bigger than the compendium. Uh, And it's the reason it's ended up being almost exactly the same pagination. I think the compendium was 520 pages. This is 526, 28, something like that. So almost identical in size. That is because with the consent of my publisher, I actually cut back on uh, certainly one major chapter that I was going to include that I decided in the end not to, because that chapter alone... This has happened in the compendium, do you remember? But that chapter alone uh, was immense, already immense, something like 200 pages. And I just realized, you know what, Henry? You're never going to finish this. And also, it was a chapter where if there was going to be any kind of nitpickers out there, it would be the chapter that attracted that kind of nitpicking, to be honest, because it was about... I I set out to cover uh, three real-life historical campaigns Mm -hmm. and i was writing about uh the marathon campaign the i think it was the uh was it the edge hill campaign in the english civil war and rommel's invasion of france in 1940 and 
just the amount of research I was having to do and fact checking and, sure. you know, writing and rewriting. Wow. It was just, uh, it was taking over my life. So I had a conversation with my editor at Pen and Sword, Phil Sidnall, and said, um, Phil, <laughs> I think I need to make an edit to what I promised this book would contain. And he was brilliant. He agreed with me completely that, you know, no, do you know what? That doesn't, that's a, that's another book. That's a whole other book, you know, about some historical campaigns, which may get done at some point. You know, I'm not making any promises, but may get done. I've already got like a 200 page head start on it. But <laughs> um, let's keep it to what is purely kind of focusing on the war gaming. Sure. And uh, thank God we made that decision because that decision that enabled me to sit down over the Christmas New Year period just gone and actually finish the damn thing. Uh, I'd actually finished writing the book uh, probably uh, about 18 months ago and sent it out to the beta readers and got the feedback about that and then had to write the extra, extra chapter about air power. But kind of the writing was done. But I hadn't sat down and done all the design and layout and, oh, my God, all the I put so many notes in the manuscript, Jay, of, oh, insight, insert diagram of weather chart here. And I was like, I'm sure I did that. No, I hadn't done the weather chart. So I had to. <laughs> oh, my God. It was just an, an insane. I did over that period, over the period of about a month and a half, two months, I just did an insane amount of work. I just parked my backside in this chair and did it. And, um, and then suddenly you realize, kind of end of January, beginning of January, oh, my God, it's done. Send it to the publishers quick, quick, before you think of something else that you should have put in it, Henry. <laughs> I, I and, seem to recall uh, very similar discussion points when we were talking about the uh, the compendium. Uh, the compendium, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and the thing yeah. is, now that, now that you understand that process more, having done it twice exactly the same way, you can do yeah. it at – you can make promises to do it differently on your next book and end up doing the exact mm. same way again. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what next book is that, Jay? Well, you <laughs> said you've got a 200-page head start on it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I think I've got some other stuff I want to do first. That's the thing. Uh, recover, not least recover, Jay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the book got done. It got sent off. And I'm actually, bless their hearts, pen and sword, after recovering from their shock of, yeah, 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 sure, Henry, sure, you've sent us your book. No, no, I really have. I really have. Look, it's in your inbox there. Uh, and I set up this Dropbox folder, and they were like, oh, my God, what's he sent us? And uh, to be fair to them, they recovered really well and got their proofreader onto it really quickly. I got my proofreader, reader, Arthur Harmon, bless his heart, who also did the index again, same as he'd done in the compendium. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it actually got turned around surprisingly quickly. I think they had a bit of a lull, post-pandemic lull, and they just threw everyone and everything at it. Got the artwork, you know, zipped over to uh, the printers in India who've done a remarkable job, I have to say. The book looks beautiful. It's the same quality as the compendium was. Weighs obviously almost identical amount and uh, is, you know, soon to be in the shop. So 
I've got no complaints about that. If you like, Penisor doing what traditional publishers do well, right? Which is actually turning manuscripts into books and getting them printed. They're really good at that. What they're not so great at is the social media stuff. Uh, and uh, I know that the same as it was with the compendium is going to be the same again. If I want this book to get out there and get sold, I'm just going to have to be really noisy on social media all over again. And then maybe once in a blue moon, someone at Pen and Sword will notice and chip in a retweet if I'm lucky, you know. Uh, but they're not so hot at publicizing their stuff in you know new media terms they do their as you've already mentioned they do their newsletter religiously once every three months six months whatever it is oh yes and as one of their authors your book will appear in there for a certain amount of time and uh, yes it's on the website you know but they they just haven't quite figured out even now how to funnel people from the interwebs into their site and get them to buy the book, you know? Um, So this is where your one's job as an author nowadays has to, you know, if you're serious about wanting to write books, folks, uh, you're going to have to face facts. You are a writer, but you are also going to have to be your own publicist, your own marketing guru. And go out there and compete with all the other noise on Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram and TikTok and goodness knows what forums, you know, uh, to let people know that the damn thing exists. (laughs) I mean, I can prove it exists by holding it putting it on a set of scales, as I did do, didn't I, Jay? Uh, put it on a set of scales and, you know, put a picture online. But um, people need to be reminded because social media is churning all the time and people's attention span is relatively short. So, you know, someone might go, oh, wow, yeah, that looks great. I must get that. And by the next day, you know, oh, something else new and shiny is coming. Oh, no, I'll get that. And they've forgotten about your thing. So um, the the you're only halfway through the journey when you hand over the manuscript, and the other thing I'm doing is I'm in the process of building a website because stupidly, <laughs> as you do when you're writing a book, oh yes, oh yes, I'll do a website to go with this book, and you're do you're thinking of doing a website for a book that you fondly imagine when you start out it's going to be, oh, be a couple of hundred pages long. And it turns out to be 520, 500, 530, whatever it is, pages with a lot of mentions in the book saying, oh, yes, go to the book's website where you can download X, Y, or Z. And it's like, no. So I'm currently, what I'm doing, I'm going through my PDF copy of the book, highlighting all the bits where I've said, oh, yes, go to the website. And it's like, I can't believe how much yellow highlighter there is all over this PDF file. What have I done? But, you know, there's, there's going to be a fair amount. Um, but, but a lot of it is going to be things like, because in a, a book about campaigns, obviously, Jay, things like maps are, are mentioned a lot. And there's a lot oh, yeah. of maps and diagrams and stuff. And what even, you know, the book's been beautifully produced. But there's a lot of maps where people are going to say, oh, I can't quite see what's going on there. So the obvious thing to do was say, look, you can download a big version of the map 
from the website, you know. And, you know, if people want to go ahead and play their own campaigns with the maps I've created, that's fine. I'm a lot more relaxed about this kind of thing nowadays than I was when I started out, you know, 2000, 1998, whenever it was with the Battle Games website. Uh, I'm a lot more relaxed about that. Uh, but if people want to, you know, download and use the maps for their own campaigns or, or adapt them, you know, change names, do whatever they want with them, that's absolutely fine by me. I hope people have fun with it. That's 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 the thing. And in any case, as before, I'm only granting access to people who've actually bought the book. The same as with the Compendium J, there's going to be kind of a password-protected area where you can download the goodies. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, because I think the cover price of this this time around is something like £40. I'm not sure what that's going to be in dollars, Jay. Uh, you'd have to tell me what Amazon have counting it for amazon currently has it at 52.95 52.90 well we all know that there's going to be discounts happening pen and sword are already discounting it for pre-orders it's already down at 30 32 pounds which i guess is about 40 something dollars right um so uh, but you know people who've been kind enough to you know pay buy the book um you know i want i'm happy to give them some extras that they can use themselves and and have fun with that's that's not a problem um and you know if people want to commission me to design maps for them well i i that's something i do for a living you know i've i've actually got clients for whom i have done that in the past and as long as people have got deep enough pockets i'll be happy enough to do that jay bit of an advert there <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's all right. Yeah, if, if if anything, this this entire episode is a plug for your book. So if you want to have a sub plug for, uh, oh bless you, for your you, your Kevin. cartography skills and website creation and book layout and and all the rest, oh, bless and you. go hey. right ahead. Yeah, because that's the other thing. I did, I uh, you know I, I'll reinforce that. I think some people looked at it in disbelief. And it, I actually have put in the book that, you know, uh, design, typesetting, maps and diagrams by Henry Hyde and photography by Henry Hyde, except we're otherwise credited. Yeah, folks, I'm there's a, there's actually a technical word. I'm technically an auteur, which is a writer who also designs and illustrates their own book. Um, it's a kind of madness. Um, but Penn and Sword were happy for me to do that because obviously this kind of book it's not like a normal history book where it's mostly text and oh yes the guy's gone and got a few archive photos that they can do a couple of sections of photos in the book and people are familiar with that kind of book type aren't they this because you know virtually every page has got something on it i mean the, compared to the compendium there are more pages just with words on I warn people, there are a lot of words in this book, Jay. I think it's something like quarter of a million words, <laughs> right? So it's not going to be an overnight read. It's also, compared to the compendium, I suppose you'd say it's not a just dipping in kind of book until you've actually read it through once, in which point you may well go back and, oh, that thing about that section, you know, I'll dip in and remind myself about that. But there's more to read. It's a more, has more narrative structure i suppose you would say because obviously i'm having to explain a lot of stuff i'm explaining you know how to 
I mean, one of the major chapters is about how I do my maps. Because if I had a quid for every time I've been asked, oh, Henry, how do you do your maps? Well, I do them in Photoshop. Oh, isn't there a piece of software I can just download that would just do it for me? The answer is nowadays, folks. I'll give the answer to that question. Nowadays, there are some bits of software that can pretty much do that for you but not necessarily to the standard that you might want there's still you know there's some of the stuff out there online i've got to say is absolutely incredible and it's software that has emerged whilst i've been writing the book so what you will find actually in that chapter is yeah this is how i do maps yes it's difficult (laughs) if you're looking for easy options don't do it this way because I'm, you know, I've been doing this for many, many years. And so I'm good at it, right? And I'm good at using and doing it this way. If you want an easy option where effectively you press a button and you get a map, well, here's a list of software you can download and do that. And there's some websites that you can do it online as well, that kind of thing. But so that's, you know, one of the major reveals, if you like, of the book is that I do explain yeah, this is how I make my maps. If you don't like the way I make my maps, if you don't whinge at me that, oh, that's I can't do that, Henry, that's far too difficult. Well, you know, go away and get 30 years design experience like I have, and you'll manage it, right? Because uh, uh, this is kind of my... This is kind of my last word on it, Jay, because I have had so many questions like that over the years. Of, oh, how do you do your maps? And people expecting me to say, oh, you just download Bazinga from Bazinga.com and it does it for you. No, <laughs> I've invented this stuff from scratch, starting with a pencil sketch. You know, I came up with all the names. I came up with all the places. I decided step by step. That's how the terrain was, whether it's a tiny little island or vast you know, continent or whatever. That's how I do it. It, it, But there are nowadays, as I say, there are some options of stuff you can do online or download, which does most of the work for you. And probably for most players, most of the time, that will do them just fine. So, but there we are. So, but that's in the book. And there's a whole chapter called Where Are We Going? Which covers... And so everything from, you know, coming up with a little, you know, scruffy island to do some fighting on. And uh, somewhere near the middle of the book, where are we? What page am I looking at here? It's uh, pages uh, 202-3. There's a double-page spread of an intergalactic map for sci-fi fans. Um, That's actually based, I'll reveal this. Uh, I don't know if you're old enough, Jay, but one of the, when um, the first Macs came out, right? uh, And I, my first Mac was a Mac SE, uh, black and white screen, grayscale, not even grayscale, literally black and white screen. And uh, it was tiny, I say little screen, I think it was like a nine or 10 inches across, microscopic, strange beige little box. And, Macs were always behind the curve when it came to games available to play on the Mac. Like PCs already had, I don't know, I don't know, even if it was Mario games or something. But on the Mac, there were precious few games. But one of the first games that became available for the Mac was called Space Rogue. Uh, 
right? And it was about this, you, you get to be this guy traveling around the, the galaxy, stopping at space stations or, or planets or mining meteors and stuff, amassing, you know, ill-gotten gains, trying to arm up your little spaceship to make it faster or more powerful or better protected or whatever. Fabulous, hugely engrossing little game that was that kept me and my business partner uh, engaged for quite a long time, actually, before some more funky, higher graphic type games came out for the Mac. Anyway, so there was uh, that game I've got a lot of affection for. And so, in fact, uh, the map that's in the uh, my book, Wargaming Campaigns, that's kind of the intergalactic map, is a kind of a nod to the map that was in Space Rogue um, uh, because it came with the instruction sheet, how to play the game, what the key commands were that you needed. But it also, on one side, had, had this lovely kind of intergalactic map. And so this, uh, this map I've done gives a bit of a nod to that um as a bit of nostalgia there we go uh, but it also the point i was making is that uh, even if you're doing campaigns with miniatures of course you can get huge amounts of inspiration from video games you know whether they're old ones or new ones because <laughs> let's face it games like medal of honor or whatever um are a form of campaign you're following the adventures or you know you it's a first person thing but you are this guy in that situation trying to get through the entire campaign win medals achieve objectives that's a campaign right absolutely and i think this is where uh guys like you know two fat lardies where they have their ladder campaigns and that kind of stuff are uh you know they've really got it uh you know done it quite cleverly where they i can see there's a parallel with the video game you know or what a tanker or whatever it happens to be there's a parallels with video games where you're playing the role of an individual character or a small team of people who are going through this series of encounters with the enemy and hopefully surviving and getting through to the end and getting promoted and all that kind of stuff. That's a campaign. You sure. know, that's as much of a campaign as doing, you know, uh, the Austerlitz campaign, if you're a Napoleonic gamer, right. Or the Normandy campaign in, in big style or the marathon campaign or whatever it happens to be. And I think that's one of the things that I, wanted to be quite exhaustive about when i was explaining you know make map making and i'm realizing gosh i'm flicking through here jay god that's a big chapter <laughs> chapter four you'll look forward to this folks chapter four which is where are we going uh covers everything i could conceive of i mean naturally by the time the book comes out and the first person reads it, oh why hasn't he written anything about that you know <laughs> Well, well, and since so you mentioned, book. since since we're talking about what's in the book, I, I think it is fair we do a. I, I do have the chapters listed here in the show notes, okay. so we'll just I'll just run run down them, and okay, mate. we'll we'll pick out the the choices bits to talk about. You've already talked about mapping in chapter four, but yep. chapter one, of course, an introduction to campaigns. Yeah, two is uh, well, camp chapter. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Do you want to? All right. Do, uh, what do you want to? All right. You re read out the list. You read out the list, mate. Yeah. I figured you could just kind of tick 
you know, put a tick mark next to the ones you really want to highlight and then we can go back. Um, campaign generalship, March to glory. There's a joke there about not being able to use that chapter the other 11 months, but <laughs> where are we going? As mentioned, uh, five yeah. with or without umpires or opponents. Yep. Six, we, the people, a, a nice nod to the, uh, American war of independence. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Seven is skirmish and role-playing campaigns, which kind of hints at the uh, single person or small team concept you were talking about a moment ago. Yep. Whether the weather may be wet or fine is chapter eight. Chapter nine, war at sea. And I think it's now weather, just a little tangent here. Weather is definitely an issue for land campaigns, but it's really an issue at sea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did a, well, we'll get back to it. Um, 10 air power, uh, 11 that, as you mentioned, thank you. Thank you, Nick. Um, 11 digital campaigns, 12 making campaigns work, 13 standing on the shoulders of giants and 14 all roads lead to Rome. So that's it. folks. 14 14 chapters jam packed with goodness. And we're going to talk about just a few of them. Yeah, I mean, uh, even reading the contents is exhausting, isn't it, Jay? <laughs> uh, I, I, we should also say there's a there's a a, a nod there. The uh, whether the weather may be wet or fine is, of course, a lo- line from a song. We're gonna hang out the washing on the sea green line. <laughs> yeah, whether the weather may be wet or fine, we'll just stroll along without a care. That's the line. From that song, a wartime song. There we go. A consideration of yeah. Um, the 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 list of chapters was one of the first things I had to come up with because that's you know when pen, when you make a proposal to a publisher they say well what's going to be in the book. So that list of chapters, I could have sworn it included air power by the way originally, <laughs> but there you go. That's my brain. Uh, that was the list of chapters. And then it was just a matter of, right, well, f- make some notes and start fleshing it out. And some of them in the process, the fleshing out became very fleshy indeed. Um, I I don't know what, I, I mean, let me just a brief kind of resume. So the introduction to com- campaigns, as we kind of mentioned, is essentially, well, w- what is a campaign? And making decisions as a as a player and as an umpire about what kind of campaign do you want to run? Because and one of the things that I mention in there is that a lot of players they're only interested in camp in interest in campaigns is will it produce battles? Right. Will it produce games that we can sit down at the club and play on a Thursday night or whatever it happens to be? If it doesn't do that, if it's all that kind of logistics nonsense, I'm not interested, right? And that's fair enough. Some players hate doing all the admin-y, paperwork-y, background stuff. All they want to do is play games. 
Now, if you can come up with a system like a ladder campaign where one game's results has has an effect on the next game, well, fair enough, I can do that. If it means that, oh, you know, the, the Blogshire Fusiliers uh, took 20% casualties in that game, I'll be, so between now and the next game, they're only going to be able to recover half their wounded. So that means they're going to start the next game 10% down. All right, I can take that. Right. If also they okay, Sergeant Smithers uh, stormed that um, uh, German machine gun emplacement uh, and took them out and got awarded the Victoria Cross for doing so, and so he's now a big man, or he got promoted to lieutenant or something. Yeah, all right, that's fair enough. I can I can take on board as I say, that kind of almost video game level of campaign where characters may get killed or may get promoted or or demoted or whatever. So, But there's a limited amount of admin thinking that I'm prepared to do when it comes to campaigns. I'm not interested in maneuvering troops great distances. I'm not interested in working out how many carts I need to carry the hay for the horses that are pulling the other carts for the hay for the other horses that are pulling the, and so on, right? On the other hand, you have people like me who are the opposite, who have in the past sat down and worked out, okay, so how many horses did Marlborough's army require to transport however many hundreds of tons of fodder for the cavalry horses? And then, of course, those require even more fodder. Those horses do, so they need more horses and more carts to pull that, and they in turn, and so on and so forth. I'm the kind of nerd that loves that sort of detail. So I'm happy to get involved with that. I'm also the kind of nerd who loves the way that a narrative structure can unfold over many, many, many games, covering vast distances, you know. Mm -hmm. And also I'm interested in the personalities. I mean, at the moment, as we were chatting before the game, I've, I've been running for... A couple of months now, I've been running a Dungeons and Dragons uh, campaign set on an entirely imaginary island, which is mentioned in the book, by the way, uh, uh, on an entirely imaginary island uh, that I invented, and it's got you know elements of Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons and stuff, and there's this group of adventurers, all of whom started as I could almost say raw naked gamers. These are all, all except one or two who had never played Dungeons and Dragons before. They're complete novices. So uh, they're starting from scratch and becoming their characters and changing over time and gaining new skills and abilities and weapons and armor and magic and da-da-da-da-da, right? In the same way as historically, you know, a, 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 a soldier might reach veteran status and gain experience with, you know, different types of weapon and different kind of tactical situations and so on and so forth. So, and I love that kind of narrative growth. I love the storytelling. You know, I keep banging on lately about storytelling. I love that aspect of campaigns. But I also acknowledge as an author, well, you know, that might be what I love. But if I just wrote a book that covered that end of things, I'm cutting off half, two thirds, three quarters maybe of my audience because it takes a particular kind of dedication as a gamer to want to do all that highly detailed stuff. 
Right. Right. And and also not everyone has access to an umpire. So they're thinking about, you know, well, you know, do I have an umpire or not? And what kind of level of commitment are your players prepared to make? Because as I've discovered running campaigns, some players are really into it. Oh, yeah, yep. I love this. And it kind of becomes their focus of their hobby for a period of time. There are others who they have busy lives. They're happy to dip in from time to time. Yes, I'll come and play the games. Ooh, I might do a once in a blue moon answer your email about, you know, supply levels or whatever, but I can't promise, you know. So this chapter basically uh, talks about all those kind of decisions you need to make when you're thinking of setting up a campaign. What's the extent of the campaign? Who's going to be involved? What level of commitment are they prepared to make? What would be kind of a simple beginner's level campaign working up to what would be a full blown, you know, mega campaign? Um, there's all kinds of, you know, I've put in a little set of campaign rules, a kind of a couple of medieval barons kind of things uh, set up, set up uh, not that far from one another. Um, and, you know, they're basically trying to get hold of all the local supplies and duff up the opposition's retinue and that kind of stuff as a limited thing, which then compares with later on in the book, you get the full Monty campaign rules, you know. Um, and I've asked a series of questions that uh, I, I've called this section sizing it all up, a series of questions that players should ask about, you know, what's their campaign going to be like? And without giving away too much, I read something. So for example, how many people are going to be involved in the campaign? How long is the campaign going to run? Is the campaign intended to be purely historical or will it allow players more freedom? Uh, how large will the campaign be? What kind of areas are it going to cover? How many sides are there in the campaign? How comprehensive is it? How intensely must the players participate? Does the campaign require an umpire or multiple umpires even? What materials need to be produced to operate the campaign? Will the participants know the details of the rules or just have an outline? How much can you personally take on, whether as an umpire or a player? And most important of all, what are you doing it for? What's it all for, right? If it's just someone's ego trip, say, yes, I run this massive campaign, uh, duh, no, the, the, in my opinion, the objective should be because it's fun. Everyone has fun doing it and gets a great deal of satisfaction out of seeing their, whether it's an individual character develop or a regiment gain renown or as a divisional commander, they start winning battles and, you know, get some people just get satisfaction out of the map maneuvering and that kind of stuff. But all those questions need to be asked before you, do anything before you produce a map or anything, you know. So that's what that introductory chapter is all about. And in some ways, you might say, well, it's the most formal chapter. But I also think it's probably one of the most important chapters, right? Uh, the next chapter, Campaign Generalship, is all about mastering strategy because, let's be honest, most war gamers, they might play a lot of games and get pretty good at in a tactical sense, Jay, you know, whether it's small unit tactics, squad level tactics, or a team of adventurers 
kind of tactics or even you know battlefield tactics at you know brigade level or divisional level sometimes gamers even get out to kind of more grand tactical level like with you know core level or even army level games but they never really get involved in strategic decisions and obviously there's a big difference between the kind of tactics that you would employ on the battlefield to win a battle and you know right there and then and strategic decisions which are looking at the longer term the bigger picture and and campaigns are really they're all about making those bigger long-term bigger picture decisions regardless of how many players are involved or how many miniatures are involved you know you're making even my Dungeons and Dragons players, I'm setting them problems now that are making them think ahead of, oh, well, you know, if we do that, that means we wouldn't be able to do this in the future. Or we might piss off them and they might be useful allies. There's all kinds of stuff going on, you know. Um, and again, I've come up with a set of questions that uh, players should ask themselves to help them answer strategic questions um and uh i'm not going to go into detail about that because you know that's giving away quite a lot but let's just say i hope that players will find that really useful because as i say i suspect that most players haven't been confronted with having to make strategic decisions as opposed to tactical ones so i'm really i'm i'm, I'm actually quite proud of that mm -hmm. chapter um, and of course it brings in factors like friction as well and yeah. here's a word that most many people might not even be a word of uh, aware of doctrine right uh this is something i had a big discussion with uh again nick skinner at two fat Lardies. i think rich was involved with that as well uh doc because doctrine is again something that's very easily overlooked in simple terms folks if you don't if you think what the heck is doctrine doctrine is basically an army command saying this is the way we do things right and a, a, a classic example would be something like blitzkrieg right so when rommel invaded france in 1940 he was employing the doctrine of blitzkrieg which essentially was do you know what move as fast as you can overtake the enemy if you meet any oppositional resistance almost kind of just block it and ignore it but keep going because by doing that you're going to disrupt the enemy behind their lines <clears throat> and they won't know what the hell is going on that blitzkrieg is a form of doctrine right lightning war and there are many many others and of course in the modern day goodness me as i discovered jay wow there are some big tomes written about military oh, yeah. doctrine right and of course anyone who thinks about the cold war certainly since the cold war era since the 50s and 60s there's been a lot written about doctrine about you know how how should we confront this threat right how should we do and there's things like and I won't translate them there. It's in the book. Auftragstaktik, a lot of German in doctrine. Uh, Auftragstaktik, Schwerpunkt, uh, central position, phase lines, deterrence, and so on, right? All these things are basically to do with doctrine. So there's uh, stuff in the book all about doctrine. So you get a much better idea of, and you, you'll see how that 
can and perhaps should influence your campaign, particularly if it's a post-World War I campaign, right? Especially if it's a post-World War I campaign. Uh, the next chapter, A March to Glory. Don't need to say too much about it, Jay. It's a huge, highly comprehensive set of campaign rules that should enable you to fight a campaign anytime from <clears throat> ancient Egypt through to uh, modern times. Right. Uh, obviously, you would have to do add in some extra details and research of your own, depending on what period you're set on. But there's the basis there to cover everything, including, yes, supply, including some basic weather rules and that kind of stuff to cover campaigns, but especially land based campaigns and sieges. Did you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? And sieges <clears throat> for vast swathes of history so i don't imagine anyone's going to just pick up my rules and play them as is because wargamers are inveterate tinkerers aren't they but there's certainly you know a, a hefty chunk of rules i'm trying to see how long the rules actually is oh it's about 50 pages of rules of one kind or another covering all as you know a, a wide range of aspects of warfare for pretty much any period of history and including sieges that you can use as the basis for your own campaigns. And there's also something I'm in the middle of doing at the moment. There's a set of what I've called campaign event cards, uh, which are just you could each campaign turn, draw a card at random, uh, each player or just, you know, one for the whole group. And that tells you things like, you know, oh, gosh, the natives are revolting, right? Or your fleet has come down with scurvy or uh, messages have gone awry or uh, yeah, th there's been a sudden snowfall up in the mountains and the passes are blocked, all that kind of stuff. Uh, or the king dies, right? All those kind of events that are going to make any real campaign leader go, oh, God, now what do we do? Right, sudden events like that. So there's, I, I, that's, I have to have to stop you right there just for a moment because <laughs> I laughed at the peasants are revolting because I don't know if you've ever seen Mel Brooks' History of the World Part One, but uh, there's yeah. there's a section where set during the French Revolution and someone oh, comes yeah, up yeah. and says, uh, "King Louis, King Louis, the peasants are revolting." <laughs> he says, "You're telling me they stink on ice." <laughs> <laughs> wow right. that's going it's, back, it's one of my favorite it's one of my favorite mel ricks movies it but. is fantastic uh then there's then there's the chapter the the where are we going which is the big fat thick chapter that tells you all about how to make your own maps whether they're historic for a historical campaign a fantasy campaign a fictitious campaign a sci-fi campaign uh and that's that's a that's a big meter. That's about 100 pages long, 90 pages long, that chapter. Big beast of a thing, giving lots of examples, and including one of the things that um, uh, emerged over lockdown and the pandemic was um, the Two Fat Lardies doing their online campaigns mm -hmm. in Lardia and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and the way that Nick uh, Skinner, takes real maps and then messes with them to kind of turn them into something fictitious. So I've kind of given an example um, of doing precisely that of my own. I've taken a section of a real 
actual real uh, ordnance survey map, actually a section of the county of East Sussex, about 20 miles down the road from where I live. And I've t- I actually paid a fee to be allowed to use this bit of the map in the book. <laughs> Can you believe you have to get a license to do this? So I've got a, a section of uh, a real ordnance survey map and basically then set about transforming it into something completely fictitious. Uh, and I, uh, anyone who does languages might notice that I think I use Hungarian to, to change all the place names and stuff. Hungarian is a weird language. So there we go. <clears throat> and so made some changes to basically take away anything that was recognisable uh, and very modern and turn it into something that would be more appropriate for kind of World War Two or even earlier. Um, and that was fun to do. That was surprisingly difficult to do. But it's there as an example showing you how to do it. Um, yeah, that's, give that's something that the that's something the U.S. Army is doing with uh, they're calling it the modern operational environment. I, I may have my right. terms mixed up, but they're taking actual actual maps and turning them into places in Denovia, for example, Denovia, ah. Denovia and Atropia. Those are the two main combatants in our, uh, oh, cool. scenarios at, uh, uh, at the various, uh, maneuver training centers, uh, JRTC oh, right. and NTC and CMTC and yeah, yeah. whatnot. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll stuff a link, in the show notes to the great uh, to the unclassified site uh, where a lot of that information and it includes all sorts of information about the, the countries and where the yeah. surface ports of embarkation are and the aerial ports of embarkation mm. and you know, everything yeah. you would need to conduct a campaign and it's ready made for, for folks who want to do a not, not real world modern campaign. For example, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm with that real quick. Cool. Well, thanks for that, Jay. That's that's really interesting. So, yeah, that that's um, uh, so. There, it turns out that people may already be familiar with doing precisely what I've described there. But I I basically go through precisely what I've done and how I've done it. Um, And um, yeah, as as I mentioned earlier, there's maps anything from little pencil sketch maps basically right up to well the example i give of my own maps people might remember uh, a couple of years ago now i ran a, a huge thing um in in a place i invented called dahlia and chindrastan this vast kind of like like an indian subcontinent area uh, which grew way way bigger than i had first anticipated uh, so i've used that uh, as the example and of course <clears throat> one of the things i did back then because it was so big i thought oh my god i can't possibly think of all these place names myself so i actually put out a call on twitter saying anyone who wants to contribute some place names you get a mention in the book mm-hmm. and so I have. I've honoured that. I have got a list at the front of the book of all the people, and there was quite a lot of them, who contributed uh, place names to my Dahlia Chindrastan map. And kind of as a thank you to them, I've got used that as my step-by-step example of literally how I built a continent from literally the ground up right uh because i did it in a very kind of atlasy sort of style so that's the big example i use of this is how i make 
make maps right so that's kind of the big where are we going uh, chapter then uh, there's as a chapter as you mentioned called with or without umpires, umpires or opponents so the role of the umpire which is of course often overlooked a lot of people volunteer oh yeah i'll umpire that <laughs> with no idea of what it is they're taking on bless their hearts so i've i've given a lot of uh, what i hope is useful notes for umpires uh, and uh, there's even a section on the an essential umpiring skill, fudging, right? So when things don't work out precisely as planned, how can you fudge the results to make it all fit together and, and, and make sure the campaign can carry on? And I've had quite a lot of examples of that. There's a, I go that, into... that reminds me of a incident that took place uh, with a buddy of mine named John Isbrand. I don't know if John listens or not, but if he, mm. if you do, John... Uh, this this one's one of my favorite stories. Uh, back in the '90s, John's a computer programmer, and right. he came up with actually a number of different computer programs to adjudicate war games. And oh, right. he had one for mass fantasy battles. He had one for uh, spaceship combat. He had one for um, Napoleonic era. Uh, large yeah. grand tactical battles, etc., and he was running the fantasy version at a at a convention. Yeah, and you know, twenty eight millimeter figures, you know, twenty thirty figure units, you know, the whole deal. And about halfway through the second turn, the computer crashed. <clears throat> but he had, God. and this is, I mean, this is before laptops, so he had you know a desktop and you know probably like a yeah yeah. Four, you know, 13, 14, 15 inch monitor, you know, you know, a couple, couple stone worth of equipment anyway. Right. Mm. And, um, luckily he had set it, his, his computer up. So the, uh, the uh, players couldn't see the screen. So, you know, playing it cool, <laughs> he just, yeah. you know, as, and he couldn't get the computer back up. So as people told him what their units were doing, he was in her, yeah. you know, diligently entering in the commands and waiting for the result to spit out. And he would just say, yeah, remove two figures. <laughs> just completely making it up in his head as he went. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And probably it was worked out just fine. Yeah. Everyone's, everyone still had a grand time. And actually that's very similar to what happened when I ran my Creechfield campaign uh, my, my brother, Chris was helping me adjudicate the combats. I was, I was keeping it relatively simple. Um, mm. and if, you know, two units came up against each other and they were duking it out, it often came down. The entire combat was a single roll in some cases. Yeah. And all right, they, well, I'll give them a 60% chance of success. Okay. So, you know, roll a D 20 or D, actually I use D 10s. Oh, okay. There's, there's your seven. That's a minor success. Oh, okay. Just, you know, and go from there. But yeah, the, uh, sometimes you just can't let rules get in the way of a good time, you know? Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, you mentioned Kriegspieler in, in this chapter, uh, with or without umpires or opponents, I do mention Kriegspiel. Uh, I do mention logistics. I mentioned matrix games, uh, and even academic war gaming. Um, because they all provide us with some interesting options, ladder campaigns, um, 
And also things when you've not got an umpire, things like Don Featherstone's old matchbox idea. Do you know what? It still works. Um, using hexes or squares, cards, dice. I've I've drawn up, I've I've forgotten I'd done this. God, I drew up a huge random effects table here uh for uh to help umpires just you know say, Oh right, well this happens. Basically roll a dice behind the scenes and tell the players what's happened um solo campaigning you know because why not you know people do solo battle gaming you can do solo uh uh campaign gaming as well and there have been a number of famous uh instances quoted in books and the wargaming press over the years and what i call non-solo solo campaigning which is you rope someone in rope a family member in to make a decision of that kind of stuff you know um so again highly comprehensive um then there's uh, the chapter called We the People. You like that title. It's all about personality-driven campaigns. And this is where, obviously, the reference to uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and, and, and characteristics and uh, the role of big men, you know, what the two fat lardies call me, uh, big men, the heroes, that sort of thing coming in. And I go into quite a lot of detail, <clears throat> excuse me, about how to create and characters and how those characteristics can be used in the campaign, how they should be used to kind of affect outcomes. And also uh, the creation of like what you might call cardboard characters or non-player characters, you know, the local innkeeper, the, the local town mayor, that kind of stuff, where you might encounter them as you know your general might have to negotiate with the local mayor for supplies or something like that but you don't necessarily want the local mayor to be a uh, turn into a big person themselves and dominate the campaign but they need to be there there's things to do with that uh I've I've done a whole thing about royal families that a section I called royal aspirations this uh sections like that this is where I put tip my hat to famous war gamers of the past people like tony bath whose book uh setting up a war games campaign that was 1980 81 something like that uh, i you know i refer to quite often in this book because you'd be mad not to because uh, he came up with such a lot of brilliant ideas um also you know, again I go back to ideas from uh, Dungeons and Dragons, like alignment. So, you know, people's personalities could be uh, uh, affected by being lawful good, neutral good, chaotic good, and so on and so forth, all those kind of things. Um, so that's what that section uh, chapter's all about, Jack. Then we've got the skirmish and role-playing campaigns, where, you know, makes it obvious, as I think I've subtitled it yet. Yeah, you don't need thousands of troops to play campaigns. And this is where I actually give an example of the D&D &D campaign that I'm running at the moment, which actually started off as a Warhammer campaign I was playing with my godson, uh, which was actually more advanced hero quest than Warhammer. So, you know, and that might only have a few dozen characters scurrying around rather than thousands of them. And I give basically an example i create a, a small campaign scenario set on furchtinsel that the readers can play through themselves or adapt 
to you know whatever they want. It it could they could easily turn it into a kind of a historical pirates versus navy and Royal Marines kind of uh, scenario, for example, or a more more modern kind of something set in Afghanistan, maybe you know guys going out on tr- patrol in the green zone, that kind of stuff, um, and. Uh, I've it's one of the things I've realized because we've talked before about how over the last couple of years, what with the cancer and all the rest of it, I've had a you know, a, I had a bit of a wargaming funk. And to be honest, it's actually is the smaller scale games and campaigns that's you know dragged me back into the hobby, not kicking and screaming because I'm actually having a hoot of a time. I'm really, really enjoying it. But it just, you know, just because someone loves to play vast campaigns with thousands of miniatures, uh, you know, at one phase in their life, doesn't mean that they don't like just getting half a dozen miniatures on the table next time out and and you know running a campaign that lasts you know effectively a week. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. So. And I know because that's something that you've been doing as well, Jay, isn't it, with your uh, kind of uh, fantasy setup, haven't you? Yeah, fantasy and uh, kind of cyberpunk uh, thing that I've been working on more recently. Uh, and, you know, with with the right mindset, you know, I, I do have a narrative. I'm not sure quite where the narrative arc is, go- is going with, with my Kanji City yeah. uh, project, but it's it started. You know, we've played a couple games and, you know, there is a story developing and, uh, mm. you know, that, and that's, and you can, and that's what's great about this hobby overall, right? You can, you know, you can have Waterloo, you know, yeah, or you could have the seven samurai, you yeah. know, and absolutely, uh, or a sharp, you know, if you want to, you know, you can have a sharp story, you know, just as easily mm. as you have Waterloo, right? If, yeah. you know, keeping in absolutely. the same, same genre there. Uh, and, and it's still, I mean, you're still using a lot of those same techniques and, uh, you're still practicing many of the same arts. You're still doing a lot of the same research. It's just a matter of, you know, do you want to sit down and paint 400 strips of six millimeter figures or do you want to paint (laughs) 10 dudes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 28 mil guys. Yeah. Um, so uh, the the next chapter, chapter eight, uh, where the the weather may be wet or fine, we'll just stroll along. That one. <laughs> Considerations of climate in war games campaigns. It sounds terribly formal, doesn't it? I I wanted to pause on this chapter a bit, Jay, because if there's one thing that gets, well, is it overlooked or is it just deliberately ignored in war games more than anything else? it's the weather oh yeah you know we always assume that we're playing a game where the sun is shining and there's there's a maybe just a the the gentlest feather of a breeze nothing that's going to interfere with anything nothing that's going to blow any arrows off course Uh, goodness me no we don't want rain let alone an absolute deluge let alone a blizzard you know uh people who People who are used to doing kind of retreat from Moscow games, Napoleonic games, might say, oh, is it very, very cold, right? And obviously, if you're doing Waterloo, you have to acknowledge the fact that it was raining heavily the night before. Yes. So therefore, your cannonballs don't bounce as well kind of thing, right? But basically, most war games think, oh, God, weather, that's a real pain in the backside. I can't be bothered to deal with it. So I've included a chapter which 
should be useful whether you're playing a campaign or whether you want to incorporate some weather into your just an individual battle and i i thought long and hard about the question of weather and how do you track weather changing over time and how do you track well hang on a minute how does it how can you come up with a rule that would apply doesn't matter where you are in the world it doesn't matter what time of year you are there in the world and it doesn't matter what time frame you're talking about and to my own astonishment and i have to say i nearly fell over when i came up with i have come up with what i have classified as trademarking as the battle games campaign barometer oh i've actually come up with a device that you can make that's basically kind of a, a gridded square with some pegs in it that will from move to move tell you how hot or cold or wet or dry it is where things are taking place so obviously if it gets hot and wet you've got potential thunderstorms hot and dry you've got potential drought dry and cold potential freeze and wet and cold potential snow or hail right seems all very obvious and i did a lot of thinking about this and as i say to my astonishment i've come up with an idea that's got this little gridded board and you roll some dice and it tells you what's going on and you can adapt it according to where your campaign's taking place and i i well i don't want to bore your listeners with going through how you do that they are going to have to buy the book and read this because it, it you know you're going to have to read it through understand it and put it into practice for wherever you happen to be but uh, it all i can say is to my amazement it works <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't think it was. And I've given exam, I've given and created an example for Paris, right? For Paris, uh, uh, Paris area summer campaign. So, say for example, you were doing Rommel's invasion of France in 1940. You can create a barometer that uniquely addresses that campaign. So the, uh, and I, oh my. God, I went online and read so many blooming things about meteorology and found uh, all kinds of stuff. And it's all out there, folks. Trust me, it's all out there about, you know, places around the world and what their average rainfall is and what their average temperatures are and at what time of year and da-da-da-da-da, maximums and minimums and means. And I did a lot of calculation uh, to make sure that this could work and you know, again, Jay, I'm sure that someone, one of the first readers is going to turn out to be a weather expert and say, nah, that, that's not going to work. Right. But, <laughs> right. But actually what I'm hoping is people are going to go, oh, actually 99.9% of the time, blimey, it does work. And certainly if uh, uh, your listeners are, are the kind of people who are prepared to look at sort of weather patterns in the zone where they're setting their game you know it, it will absolutely should work what can i say and it doesn't i and i i looked at examples kind of in in the arabian desert i looked at examples you know in rainy areas of rangoon and what have you i looked at examples in europe and uh at cold zones in the arctic and it's like crikey yeah because what you do is you set the parameters 
for the for the for the grid so you know if you're in a in a hot dry season you it doesn't matter what dye you're going to roll it's not suddenly going to rain for a week non-stop just not going to happen you might have a there's an outside chance that there might be a little bit of a rain shower or something but if you're in the middle of the arabian desert mm, right it's not going to be much more than that so you you set your parameters uh to a much smaller kind of bracket right and the same with temperatures you know if you're in the middle of the arabian desert you know during the day it's likely to be very hot surprisingly during the night it could be cold so you just set the barometer for those kind of parameters but that's as much as i can kind of explain on the radio as it were jay because people need to see the diagram and need to read through it and and see for themselves and of course the other thing is this can be adapted to a fantasy campaign it can be adapted to a sci-fi campaign you know if instead of hail, chance of hailstorm there's chance of acid rain or right. chance of yeah. lava lava falling you just change it to that instead right so there we go so also uh, i as as an an add-on or an alternative to that i've come up with a whole load of weather cards this is based on an idea from don featherstone which i've just kind of developed to the nth degree um and so there's a whole load of weather cards you can just uh, draw a card from a pack and again that will tell you what the weather needs to be for the following campaign week or whatever oh, and okay. what effects it has we're obviously if you have a a, a, a a rainy deluge for several days, you know, well, for one day, it might affect some of your troops. For two days, things are starting to get muddy and it'll affect more of your troops. Three days and four days, you know, the longer the rain goes on, the more types of troops and even tracked vehicles eventually could start to get bogged down if they're, if they're not careful. So there's all that kind of thing. For a cold, heat and cold. Again, you know, we think that uh, modern armies are kind of immune from it. Not so, as I'm sure you know, Jay. Uh, that that desert sand gets everywhere. You know, anything anything potentially can overheat or freeze or whatever. And, you know, suddenly all the greatest tech in the world is just a useless lump of metal if it doesn't work right. So weather's incredibly important. And I'm quite... As you can tell, I'm quite passionate about it, and that's why I've written a chapter about it. And as a nod, one of my favourite war gamers of the past, and he's still with us, I believe, somewhere, um, uh, probably heading into his 90s now, um, Charlie Wesencraft, Charles mm -hmm. Wesencraft, wrote a wonderful book called Practical Wargaming that was published again back in 1974, something like that. And in it, he did his own uh, barometer idea and so i've reproduced that barometer as a nod to uh you know an homage to charlie wesencraft i actually went and made his weather barometer and there's a picture of it with his book in my book as a thank you to charlie for the ideas and inspiration that he's given me over the years so that's how that chapter ends folks so if you if you've kind of discounted weather up to this point i just hope that reading that chapter will make you think oh actually do you know what i'll give it a go and if yeah. I manage to do that, I'll be happy. Yeah, weather is definitely one of those things that typically we don't even think about or ignore, but it 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 has a huge impact on yeah. on uh, on operations, and it, it's and it affects you know, like you said, it, it affects everything. You know, not just simply yeah. mobility, but now all of a sudden, you know, if you're going to be 
you know, operating where the average temperatures are 80, 90 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to have to consider mm. bringing with you or finding more water than if the average temperatures were in the 50s or 60s, for example. Yeah, yeah. You know, just simply because, well, you sweat it out, right? And yep. that's just, you know, that's not counting the effects of, you know, what what are the effects of long-term wet conditions? Well, trench foot's one of them, mm. you know, and that affects your medical readiness for the, you know, for, yeah, that, yeah. for that entire unit. Because if you've got, you know, if you're a platoon, you know, if your game centers on a platoon that, you know, and you've got six guys out with trench foot, well, that's, yeah, that's half a squad. And, you know, now you're talking about yeah. seriously compromising the effectiveness of your platoon, you know, because, yeah. you know, someone didn't change their socks or simply because they weren't able to have dry socks. And yeah. it's, it's definitely one of those details that we overlook, but it is so yeah. central to the experience and you know of of actual operations and you could go on yeah. and on and on and i think you hit on you you mentioned it a couple times you know what are the what are the effects you can make it you know minute to the point where okay this guy's got a really bad sunburn you know yeah. or you could make it a little bit more general you know high temperatures it's generally going to affect your your operations just overall so maybe instead of yeah. three hexes this turn you can only move two or yep. you know what have you, and I think I think a lot of times we don't consider it because we're simply not thinking about it. But also, if we are thinking about it, we start thinking about okay, how does that affect the play of the game, right? Yeah. And yep. now all of a sudden, all of my roles, which I knew were going to be, you know, it's always a six plus. Well, now that may turn that to an eight plus, but I got to remember that extra rule now. Yeah. You know, and if it's a game that I don't, you know, if I don't get to war game, but once a month, do I yeah. want to inject yet another variable into my game? Sure. That, sure. you know, and, and, and that all goes into, you know, the mental load of the war gaming we do. And that that's a yeah, whole other thing. Yeah, and also I, I, it's something we've talked about before, Jay, which is, you know, how, and inverted commas, how realistic oh, sure. do you want your games to be? And certainly introducing weather is another layer of, inverted commas, realism. But it also, yes, you could say it has an administrative burden that goes with it, which, you know, the, I would say most players would want to kind of limit how burdensome it becomes. So all I'm saying is I've included the chapter because it, I hope it will get people thinking. And if people, you know, people, if people adopt my suggestions, lock, stock and barrel, well, that's fantastic. You know, I'm hugely flattered, but I'm, I think that the, the effect it's likely to have is get just people think, as you say, thinking, Oh, actually, yeah, uh, probably the kind of gaming I do for that particular period, that particular theater of operations, I probably should think about the fact that, do you know what, if if you're setting a game in our country, in the UK, right, and, you're, and your games or campaigns don't take rain into account, well, <laughs> mate, it's that's not very British. You've got to account, take into account the fact that, do you know what, that the reason we have a lot of green grass here for a reason, because it rains a lot. And so, you know, potentially every other day you could say it rains. I don't know what the annual rainfall total is, but, you know. Um, and 
these are factors that particularly if you're do, playing a campaign, as you said, you gave the example, most people would overlook trench foot. Yeah. But that could cripple an entire unit. You know, if you're playing a World War One game, how many guys in that frontline trench are actually ready for action? Answer, mm, if they've been standing in waterlogged trenches for too long, aren't not very many. They're virtually crippled. Uh, and so that's going to have an effect on its combat readiness, its ability to fight back, you know. And if a fresh unit comes up against them that have got nice dry feet, who's going to win? You know, it seems stupid. We all, we all obsess about, oh, yeah, but my, my gun's bigger than your gun. Yeah, actually, it can often come down to my feet are drier than your yeah. feet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? And, and there are so many factors that go into that. I mean, not just the weather, but, you know, your supply yeah. situation. Are, are, are your logisticians doing what they can to make sure yeah. that you stay supplied with dry feet. Are your NCOs, do you even have NCOs to take care of your soldiers and say, Hey, change out your socks yeah. or don't sleep with your boots on and, and yeah. stuff like that. Because you know, that, that stuff matters. And you know, what yeah. we see going on in Ukraine yeah. right now is a lot of Russian units aren't doing so well because they don't have NCOs yeah. to tell their soldiers to change their socks. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's crazy, isn't it? You think it's crazy, but it's it's real. It's really happening right now, ladies and gentlemen. And and I think back to you know I you regularly do route marches and stuff, Jay, don't you? Because of your 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 service. But I think back to when I did my uh, marathon walk back in 2011. You know, 20, and that was 26 miles on what turned out to be the hottest day of the year. Thank God I had enough fluids to take in thank god i was sensible and had looked after my feet and had two pairs of socks on so i didn't end up with blisters unlike my walking partner because certainly you know i've there have been certain times when when i was doing my walk training where oh my god after like 10 miles and i've got the most appalling blisters on my feet which made it impossible to concentrate on anything right you're in that much level of pain because of your feet. How are you going to concentrate on fighting a battle? You know, your own survival is, and it's like this, this stuff is serious. So anyway, the weather, it's in there, Jay. And I hope, you know, I, I, by the sound of things, you're going to find it an interesting chapter. And I hope that the readers will find it at the very least thought provoking. And as I say, to my own astonishment, I seem to have come up with this device, which <laughs> seems to work uh, and adds a bit of a, you know, a lot of war gamers like little devices, don't they? And this is like a little pegboard thing you can have next to your, your maps or your war game table to keep track of the weather. And uh, yeah, it's a bit of fun. Um, I do, I do have on, to I mention. Suppose. I do have to mention that I do seem to recall that advice about two pairs of socks uh, came from a certain NCO. It may well have done. <laughs> I remember having I this discussion possibly. with you, Henry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true. A lot. Now that was quite a long time ago, then, Joe. Wasn't my goodness me? That was a long time ago. Well, thank you for that advice, mate. That was that was extremely useful. Um, next chapter nine: uh, War at Sea, naval campaigns. And obviously, I gave I because there's a lot of war gamers who are war gamers but never played naval games. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair to say. 
Uh, with things like Sales of Glory that have come out in recent years, I think there's probably more more people now who've dabbled in it. And certainly at a few war game shows in recent years, and I think of Partisan again, there have been a couple of astonishing display games with beautiful uh, Rob Langton kind of miniature 1 600th, 1 1200th scale sailing ships and stuff. Absolutely, and lots of people have just been gobsmacked by the look of the game. And in fact, the most recent partisan, shout out to Barry Hilton, because Barry Hilton was uh, showcasing his new naval rules, which I, for my sins, I forgot the, I've forgotten the name of the rules. He will no doubt come along and remind us in the show notes uh, of what his rules are called. But they're using really tiny, tiny little ships, um, kind of 17th century naval warfare. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Um, now, so I, I give a bit of an introduction to remind people, of course, that naval warfare goes way back to kind of ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, all those triremes and biremes and quinqueremes and stuff that had, uh, you know, not just sails, but oars as well and did their damage by ramming. And then, you know, later on, you've got things like the Battle of Lepanto with the Venetians and the Turks, where by then they got cannons on board and archers and arquebusiers and all the rest of it. And then you're moving into the my favorite era, the era, era of the Age of Sail where you've got these wonderful ships of the line, the wooden walls of England, HMS Victory, and all that kind of stuff. But I also then go further through to kind of the Ironclad and Dreadnought era. And I've got going to send out a special shout-out to Elliot. Uh, Elliot, who is one of my patrons and was one of my beta readers, who said, Henry, you haven't said enough about the Dreadnought era, which is incredibly important in naval warfare. So on his advice, I added in some more about the Dreadnought era. And of course, this brings in then the fact that ships aren't moving just you know from wind power they need fuel so things like coal and wood and then oil and diesel and stuff the supply of these things becomes critical so a lot of naval warfare focuses around where are your supply points for re-coaling or re-oiling your 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 battleships you know because basically if they don't get this stuff they're just going to stutter to a halt in mid-atlantic right and be useless to everyone so that kind of thing so i've got a whole thing about you know uh coal bunkers and and how much coal or oil these ships consume on a naval uh, on an hourly basis that kind of stuff uh, and there's a couple of wonderful uh, wargaming books that were pointed out to me that date back to the 1980s that are kind of are, are acknowledged in the in the bibliography that were really useful for this kind of stuff because naval wargamers if you think land wargamers like detail man you should see some of the stuff that naval wargamers have done over the years right so then I go into how to run a naval campaign and again I got inspired by some of the old books because there's different types of naval campaign different ways of running them with different amounts of complexity and then of course you're looking at kind of uh how ships actually fight at sea and because the in, in naval terms campaigns slip into battles and then slip back to campaigns they kind of segue 
very nicely kind of because of the difficulty of actually finding the enemy in the middle of the ocean there's a lot of sort of campaign goes on and then you know a brief battle sometimes you know in the dreadnought era it might just be minutes and then the ships disappear again where have they gone right uh and of course there's some wonderful things if you love if you're interested in getting kind of inspired to do naval campaigns i've got to you know the the hornblower books or the uh, the um, master and commander ones the oh goodness me i've forgotten his name now the, aubrey and Maturin. Um, patrick o'brien yeah pa- patrick o'brien um books uh absolutely fantastic inspiration for this kind of thing and then i give some rules for ship to ship battles either you know basically ways of kind of doing them quickly as part of a campaign so it's kind of you could say semi-automated if you like depending on the strength of you know what's uh, the, the the ships facing one another the fleets facing one another and obviously there are any number of naval battle rules out there that can be incorporated into your campaigns so i've done you know it's not a huge chapter on naval campaigning but i think it's sufficient to give the flavor and for someone who's primarily interested in land campaigns it certainly provides enough stuff for you to add naval campaigning to your campaign to make it kind of more meaningful and realistic without too much headache and paperwork uh so you know that's what the naval campaign is about and that segues onto the air power campaign and we'll mention nick skinner again thank you nick um where again because a lot of gamers who are land game campaigners uh might have tried a bit of wings of glory or something like that uh, check your six maybe but not actually done a lot of aerial wargaming so again for me this was fascinating like gosh actually the the history of aerial warfare going back to balloons and stuff is really fascinating um and then of course we get to the 20th century the the, the acceleration in technology has been extraordinary in aerial warfare we get to the 20th century and of course the key event in the 20th century the battle of britain uh, provides the focus for the chapter and uh, so there's some ideas for doing a battle of britain campaign uh, some of it giving a nod to some of the board games that are out there of course that cover the battle of britain as well um, and then post Post-World War II, the emergence of jets, the Falkland Islands, all that kind of stuff, and way right up to the modern day with drones and unmanned aerial vehicles, that sort of stuff. All those things, of course, uh, have had a dramatic effect on modern warfare and therefore should be addressed in your wargaming campaigns. Whether they're used actually to attack the enemy or defend yourself from the enemy or for, you know, now unmanned aerial vehicles, they go out there remotely and do the targeting and the bombing themselves, some of them, which is mind-boggling, really. Um, And, of course, there have been a number of, uh, you know, fairly recent uh, events in our history in certain theatres where governments have been reluctant to get involved with anything other than 
an aerial campaign. You know, the idea of bombing the Serbians into submission, for example, or, you know, what happened in Libya or what's happened in other places in the world where governments have become very reluctant to put boots on the ground, haven't they, Jay? Whereas sending a few high-tech aircraft that can drop stuff in the middle of the night that's highly accurate you know if that will get the job done that'll do thanks very much indeed so there are nowadays campaigns that actually consist of nothing but aerial air power you know aerial warfare uh which is a fascinating development so that's that we're nearly there jay we're getting through it thanks for letting me talk about this oh sure sure uh I then move on to digital campaigns, making use of modern technology. And, of course, this is a chapter that was absolutely really inspired by what people like Two Fat Lardies have been doing during the pandemic and their uh, lardy online campaigns and stuff and digital lard. Jeremy, hi, Jeremy, if you're listening, and all that kind of stuff, the use of social media for uh, maintaining contact for stuff going on on forums, uh, YouTube, and of course I include, I have to include things like podcasting, you Mm. know, even, and um, I've got a whole section which I call the elephant in the room, wargaming during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's just, that's a chapter that really is just to bring people right up to date and talk about what modern technology has allowed us to add to our campaigning. Obviously, during the pandemic, for a lot of people, doing stuff digitally online was the only option. It was that or nothing, right? Because we couldn't get together in person. But now, even though we can get together in person again, I think we've learned that, gosh, there's a lot that you can do uh, you know, with campaigns and with battles, you know, actual battle games on an international basis. You and I, Jay, have played Commands and Colors across the Atlantic, haven't oh, we? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, obviously, if you can do that, you can do campaign stuff as well. And I, and I, you know, I've been doing, even if you're just doing stuff via email, which I'm doing with my current Dungeons and Dragons campaign, keeping spreadsheets, that kind of stuff, or you're using stuff like Discord, or uh, you're doing private podcasts, so you're keeping your players updated using a pr- private podcast service or something like that with with reports of what's going on, doing a digital newsletter, uh, discussing stuff on forums, uh, announcing stuff on social media and all all these things now are just uh part and parcel of what we do as war gamers i think you know i've talked about this elsewhere i think it's one of the things that's been really remarkable is during the pandemic how the war gaming community pulled together and made fantastic use of modern technology social media, uh, you know, various forum types like Discord and what have you. And the Lardies are just one standout example of that. But I thought, you know, I couldn't write this book about campaigns in, you know, and have it published in 2022 without mentioning this stuff. So there is a chapter about that. Um, 
which I hope people are going to, some people might go, blimey, I didn't know that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at least most people, I think, will be pleased to see that the role that this stuff has played has been acknowledged in a modern book about wargaming, right? Yeah. Um, go on, Jay, you were going to say something. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, out of, you know, often out of adversity comes, you know, these explosions of, of creativity and then certainly the the recent pandemic has has certainly illustrated that with you know the ability like you said to put games together and get people playing together and you know i've i've run what a tanker for example uh over uh zoom or skype or whatever it was we were Mm. running and you know like you said with the commands of colors games and then the the Lardies have definitely elevated running a campaign digitally to, to an art form. I had the the good fortune to mm. play in two of them and the ability, you know, discord is such a unique tool for that with the ability to set up private chat areas where only certain people yeah. have access to them. And the, and I've used that myself in my, uh, in the, the not, American civil war, you know, it was red versus blue, uh, mm. rather than blue and gray, but, uh, the, the ability that that gives a game master to really tailor the experience yeah. to their, to their players in the situations that the players find themselves in is, is just astounding. Yeah. And it, I can't understate, you know, just like with any other, project that you're going to undertake it it does take quite a bit of you know quite a bit of a learning curve to figure out how all this technology works and you still got to put in the work to develop your maps and make Mm. sure that your orders of battle are are lined out and that sort of thing so at the end of the day it's not you know the preparation isn't terribly different it's just Mm. the way you're applying you know the distribution to your people whether they're you know Mm. set up and in a house with three rooms where the red team has one room and blue team has a Mm. identical map and a second room. And then the umpire or umpire Mm. team has the same map with the real story on it. Right. And yeah. And it's just, it's, it's a great, uh, you know, again, I'm very fortunate in being able to play in two of those Lardy games and running one of my own. And I, I do have some players who, have asked, hey, are we are we going to do that again? And I, I would absolutely <laughs> love yeah. to. And actually, that makes me think yeah. that that might be an opportunity for the upcoming J three weekend because we're doing it over Fourth of July weekend. So, all right, people are going to start arriving on Thursday, and people aren't going to be leaving until Monday. So, wow, it's it's super. It's probably a little late to be thinking about that at this point. Damn. <laughs> I should have thought of this earlier, but uh, Rod back own rearrange these words. Yeah. So anyhow, yeah, it's it's really, you know, I can't say enough about the last just over two years, two years and three months at this point mm. that have really, mm. really changed the, the way many many people experience this hobby for the better. Yeah, and I'm sure there, yeah. I'm sure there's some some unfortunate stories out there about, you know, whatever unfortunate could happen. But I think mm. on the balance, you know, it's, it's been, 
it's it's been an interesting time to say the least and i'm sure we could have a complete episode just on talking about the effects of the last two and a half years on on the hobby but, yeah yeah um yeah i, I think overall yeah. we're in a better place than we were two and a half years ago as far as the hobby's concerned oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's there's been a metamorphosis hasn't there and i think that that's been really really healthy actually it's made us rethink many aspects of the hobby um just for a, a, a move on, I do want to say, send out a huge shout out to Nick and Richard Two Fat Lardies oh, sure. for their help in, um, in in helping me put together that chapter about digital campaigns because they've allowed me to quote a load of the stuff from their Lardus campaign. Uh, because basically I wanted to, a lot of people who wouldn't have heard of discord might be going, what the hell is he talking about? I don't understand this at all. What's he talking about? So they very kindly have allowed me to quote a whole chunk of stuff and include their maps, right. And some of the chat room discussion that from their original kind of Lardus campaign, because it was an extra, it's just absolutely extraordinary thing. And uh, the work that they put in, including, and I've, you know, I'd almost forgotten I put these in the book, the way that they had concocted aerial reconnaissance photos of various parts oh, of, yeah. you know, enemy territory was just extraordinary and so they've allowed me to you know uh, very kindly to include some of this stuff in the book to give people a much better idea of what we're talking about and i think that you know for anyone who still you know was hiding under a rock and didn't know about what the lardies were doing or haven't heard of this i think there's going to be an absolute revelation for them so there we go um anyway i suppose i was to press on because time's moving mate um the the next thing is going to be for fans of the Wars of the Faltinian Succession, because loads of people, as I said at the top of the show, said, oh, Henry, are you going to do something about the Wars of the Faltinian Succession? Well, here's a chapter, chapter 12, called Making Campaigns Work, which is basically to explain to people how I run a specific campaign and it's based on my wars of the Faltinian succession and again for anyone who doesn't know about that is complete completely fictitious what we now call imagination campaigns so i talk about my the influences i've had that made me kind of start my own wars of the Faltinian succession how i got started with that how it started off as a two-player thing with my friend guy but a lot of those, and I originally was going to do like a whole camp, reproduce a whole campaign season from those early campaigns with my friend Guy with all the coordinates where all the troops were and all the rest of it. And I just realized I, I wrote it and I reread it, and my beta readers looked at it and went, Oh, Henry. You may love that, but mate, I hate to tell you this, but for for a reader, that's really tedious. <laughs> you know, which every writer hates to hear something like that. It's like, oh, so you're telling me I've made a really boring chapter in my book? Oh dear! And you could go away and have a hissy fit, you know. But my my response is, well, if that's what my beta readers are telling me, I better change it. So I did. So I changed it to be about what I call the later Wars of the Faltinian Succession, which is where I started involving other players. For, uh, and these are people from the uh, LOA forum. Uh, hi, guys, if you're listening. Uh, and they're all named. And so I've based this 
chunk of the chapter on a series I wrote actually for miniature war games with battle games, which was about the 1750 Grand Huissac Bay campaign, which we actually played in. Uh, I've reminded myself, play that was May 2016. Goodness me, is it already that long ago? Seems like it was more recent, but time's flown, isn't it? So I basically. Uh, show you how I drew the map for that campaign, what the map was, who the combatants were, what the forces were that they were commanding, and how it was run. And this is where it gets interesting for people. How Because my old campaigns with Guy were all literally done by post or in person, mm-hmm. the really old-fashioned way. Whereas these more recent things with the guys from the forum, uh, obviously we used email and we were communicating on the forum and I had a blog and stuff. So I've been able to incorporate a lot of those kind of digital aspects of campaigning that we talked about in the previous chapter, which I think helps it to make more sense for people. And uh, so I basically go through the events and how decisions were arrived at and some of the correspondence that was exchanged and some of the silly things that put, you know, ended up on the blog and uh, some of the the, the the maneuvering that was done and the, the battles that were fought. Uh, and and one of the things that was really lovely, I'm so glad I kept all the comprehensive notes and 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 correspondence from that game because some of the some of it is just really funny. Um and the way that um you get the different personalities of the different players involved in the and the way that they commanded their troops. And in fact, I mentioned way back earlier, you know, when you're organizing a campaign, you've got to take into account that some people invest a lot. They love doing this stuff. And I'm not going to name any names, but it become obvious when you read it. There are certain people uh, involved in this campaign who loved the paperwork, who loved the detail stuff, right? And would write me screeds and screeds of orders for their troops. And there are <laughs> others who would send me a one, a, others who would send me a one line email, you know, yeah. sorry, Henry really busy uh in fact let let uh let mark do uh, command me for this move right and uh and you get all that and uh, we mentioned earlier on one of those important skills you have to have as an umpire which is fudging right fudging results and outcomes and what i'm really pleased about as well is i've it's that campaign included uh, a really quite small encounter so you've actually got a little mini battle report with lots of pictures uh, in the book and also there was uh, some really huge battles uh, for the climax of the campaign you know a lot of really fancy maneuvering and stuff so there's lots of maps lots of photos with captions and stuff uh, and i think people will just really enjoy that more than just a week by week blow by blow account of the the schmickelhoff fusiliers moved two hexes to the north you know that kind of thing um and obviously the other thing is i've i've written here about you know the challenges of uh, creating an imagination and then opening up to other people because other people bring their ideas to it and you have to make choices about do I incorporate those ideas or do I reject them or you know whatever and you know I, I talk about that I also as someone else I want to mention in this show uh Sydney Roundwood oh yeah 
who you know. Uh, he's someone else who loves keeping ca campaign diaries, and he was very kindly allowed me to use uh, an image of one of his campaign diaries that to me is just, oh, it's a thing of beauty. It's absolutely exquisite, the care and attention that he puts into uh, creating his, it's called the Larden, which is sort of a 17th century right, right, Dutch right. type uh, uh, campaign absolutely exquisite so i've kind of referred to him and his campaign diary and his wonderful sydney roundwoods wargaming blog is just again a thing of astonishing beauty that has been running for years so it's been really nice to include that as well so i think that fans of the wars of the valtinian succession are going to get a nice enough taste that okay i'm making a nod to my my you know, keenest fans, if you like. And I'm really, really grateful for the fact that people are so interested in, you know, my stuff, mm -hmm. but in a way that hopefully will entertain and inform people who aren't necessarily fans of imagination campaigns, but there's enough in there that will be useful for, for anyone. Um, nearing the end now. So we've got a, a last major chapter, which is I called standing on the shoulders of giants, learning from well-known war game campaigns. And of course I had to, you know, there are lots out there. I chose three, uh, Tony Bath's Hyboria, which obviously ran in uh, battle magazine way back in the late 1970s, uh, a completely fictitious ancients campaign, which basically gave him and a number of other prominent war gamers of the time, people like Don Featherstone, Charles Grant, and more a chance to pit their, uh, highly competitive ancients armies because they're all very competitive WRG ancients you know ancient war games rules war gamers uh, they pitted their armies against one another totally willy-nilly so you had kind of mad Viking armies up against <laughs> ancient Egyptians and goodness knows what what a laugh so I I explained something about that to people and point them in the direction where they can find out more information then uh, the thing that got me hooked in war games and wargaming campaigns in the first place. Charles Grant and The War Game, that book that came out in 1971, where he had his two fictitious countries, Die Vereinigte Freistetter and the Grand Duchy of Lorraine, pitched against one another, actually representing Prussia and Austria of the Seven Years' War. You know, So I, I talk about that and how they ran their campaign. Uh, and there's, there's quite a lot in there that I think people will find not just nostalgic, but actually quite interesting and useful. And the final one I did was another thing that ran in Battle Magazine in the late 1970s, which is a siege. There was a chap called Ron Miles, who I think might just be still with us. He's very, very elderly now, into his 90s. Um, and he was a friend of Don Featherstone's in Southampton. And back then in the 70s, he, he ran a series of articles called The Siege of Dendermond, hmm. which is from Marlborough's campaign. Dendermond is a real place, and it was a real siege. And so he did his, he conducted the siege, and obviously got his own outcome from it. But he built this huge fortress out of polystyrene 
very mostly highly flammable, uh, <laughs> uh, but did this campaign. And it was just really, really thrilling to read the installments about how the, the you know, the, 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 the French saps were going forward inch by inch and got within reach of the walls. And they set up batteries, started battering the walls. And the defenders made a sortie out to kind of, uh, you know, destroy the siege lines that they were building fascinating stuff uh, and was one of my favorites so that's kind of three examples of war gamers of yesteryear doing campaign stuff the book ends everyone will be delighted to hear it does end eventually on page 503 uh, i've done a little section called all roads lead to rome which is basically a variety of ideas from other sources for campaigns so source magazines Mm -hmm. i've done a whole big list of recommended books and rule sets uh gosh it's a very long list of books and rule sets uh i've recommended some blogs and websites where uh, war gamers have been running their own campaigns and blogging about them i give some uh, tips about adapting board games uh, and obviously the biggest tip of all which is no giveaway really is for goodness sake get yourself over to boardgamegeek.com where they you know and just put in uh you know uh, napoleonic campaign whatever and a dozen different board games will come up many of which will have really useful systems that you can adapt and use Mm -hmm. for your own campaigns and i end the book with uh, a little article, actually, that, again, was from Miniature War Games with Bath Games. Steve Jones. Hi there, Steve. Steve's painting shed and all that kind of stuff. He's a big American War of Independence guy. In fact, he ran an AWI game at the Partisan Show just a couple of weeks ago. But he'd written an article for me, a little simple set of campaign rules called Debacle on the Danube, which is a little Napoleonic campaign, French and Austrians and that kind of stuff, obviously, set in 18. And I thought that was a really nice way to end the book with a little mini set of campaign rules that obviously you can go away and use yourselves. And the very last pages of this monster tome are... Uh, the index compiled by the wonderful Arthur Harmon again, which is a, a modern kind of index, which kind of splits things into subject matter and tells you how you can find, you know, things the same as he did for the compendium, really very useful kind of index rather than just every single entry for every single thing listed. And then right at the back of the book, there's an afterword uh Jay, which in which I basically get to tell the story of the writing of the book, and that mate is it. Is it, that that's it? That's all of it. <laughs> is that you all? Mean... <laughs> I've wasted two hours of your time talking about this tiny, slim volume. What can I say? Well, you forgot. <laughs> <laughs> And at the, it was at this point that Henry disconnected the call. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it is definitely, I mean, crying out loud, we've been waiting patiently for eight years now. And it, it's definitely, it's definitely going to be worth the wait from what it sounds like. And I'm, I'm very excited for you. And thanks. Um, thanks. I'm looking forward to very shortly having it in my hot little hands. I think, um, I think when I first posted my picture screenshot of the of my order from Amazon, they were saying something like September twenty seventh or something like that. 
And yeah. I looked just now, they, they updated it to August 31st. So, Oh, well, that's an improvement. Yeah, I'll take it. So, um, now I am very much looking forward to it. Um, I'll have to figure out how to integrate it, of course, into, you know, any number of projects that I'm wanting to do. Um, yep. Yeah. August, August 31st is, uh, Oh, Kindle. It'll be released August 31st. And then, uh, prime delivery is supposed to begin for pre-orders on Wednesday, September 7th. All right. So you guys would get the Kindle before the hard copy. That's what it's looking like. Wow. Okay. That's different. That's what it's looking like. Uh, That's really interesting because normally pen and sword want to, well, for the compendium, you might remember they left it ages before they did the Kindle. They would say, Oh no, no, no. We don't want people to have the Kindle before they've bought the hard copies. So that's really interesting. Um, We'll have to see if that's just another administrative error. I'll mention it to the people. Pen and sword really ought to be on the ball more about these things, but it's only been where you guys, and thank you to everyone who has been mentioned. Oh, Henry, it says on this website that this, this, and this, and I've gone to pen and sword and say, why is it? Oh no, it shouldn't say that. They say <laughs> we'll do something, but they're very, they only seem to react. They're not very proactive. So um, if anyone has any further information about weird dates appearing on websites, uh, well, you could drop them a line, of course. Just go to the Pen and Sword website and click on their contact link and let them know. Uh, or mention it on Twitter and tag at Pen Sword Books, I think they are, um, and, and and let them know that way. But anyway, I hope you get your copy soon. And I hope that you I – no, I think, first of all, quite apart from anything, I hope you enjoy the process of reading it. Um, because even just flicking through it there, I remember, oh, actually, I, I, it, despite the travails that I endured over the course of that length of time, I did enjoy writing it, you know, there, and uh, some of the research I had to do was like, oh, gosh, that's interesting. And even, you know, statistics about rainfall in Dubai or, uh, you know, stuff about the early naval or or you know the dreadnought era or uh, air warfare that kind of stuff um as well as all the other stuff stuff about doctrine goodness me uh yeah that was because i i realized oh that's kind of a weak area for me so i went away and did quite a lot of reading about doctrine found a lot of very current kind of uh military pamphlets that you can download online then you know they're available to the public um and therefore available to the russians i would have thought you know um which is kind of interesting but uh yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is available out there that and and i think that's you know when i think back jay to the kind of books that i've loved myself in the past very often those books have been the start of a journey for me where they've inspired me to go off and read other stuff to research other stuff and discover stuff on my own and i you know like with the compendium i kind of hope that that's what this book will do for the folks out there that they'll read my book and go oh gosh that's interesting i didn't know that i'm and go off and start ferreting around and find out more stuff of their own or you know look at my set of campaign rules and use that as the basis for some of their own stuff you know um and I will be thrilled by that. And when the website for the book is up and running, I obviously will announce that. And people have had a chance to read the book um, and that they want to sort of 
tell everyone about that, you know, exchange notes or whatever, uh, that would be fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, so just looking at pen and sword, once again, they're currently offering it for pre-order at 32 pounds. They're, uh, that's a discount from their suggested retail price of 40 pounds. Uh, yeah. Looking at Amazon in the U.S., they are currently having it on pre-order at fifty-two ninety-five U.S. dollars, and then their regular price is going to be seventy. Now, I did not see a Kindle or uh, price for Kindle or PDF on Pen and Sword site, but Amazon is going to throw you the Kindle for thirty-two forty-nine, which is down from forty-two ninety-nine. Oh. So, uh, interesting. let's see. I'll experiment here real quick. Uh, if you change the, well, okay. people can figure it out on their own. <laughs> what what yeah, it's going to be? Yeah, in, in yeah. Their just set, go to Amazon, folks. Go to keep an eye on what's happening. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, also, it will be as I say, it's all it's bound to be available via Casemate if you use Casemate Publishing. I'm sure that in the UK, uh, Dave Ryan at Caliber Books is going to manage somehow to get his hands on some copies um, and uh, may well be doing some kind of d- discount via Canva books um, and over in the States, New Jersey on military matters is mm-hmm. is the place in New Jersey. Um, so there's all going to be the hobby bookstores stocking it, I imagine, but also, you know, the big boys who will be able to give hefty discounts and obviously bear in mind folks, every time you buy my book at a discount, it means my royalties are reduced as well well what what folks should do to make up the difference is go and subscribe to your patreon and there will be a link in the show notes um i am i am a longtime subscriber um maybe not from day one but certainly from the very beginning and uh you nearly said long long suffering subscribe didn't you then (laughs) I, I have gotten my money's worth and more. I'm not going to necessarily discuss oh, the you. level of commitment my I have, but it is substantial uh, for bless you, mate, for uh, a Patreon backing. And uh, I'm not the only one I note uh, at that level. So I'm glad that you're no, able no. to supplement your. Well, I guess you, would you get monthly or quarterly disbursement monthly. from them? Okay, monthly. Yeah, yeah, and obviously it fluctuates because it's it's all done in dollars. So depending on what the exchange rate is, um, I could stay with exactly the same number of subscribers paying me exactly the same amount, but what I actually get can change according to the exchange rate, which is that took some getting used to. But now it's just like, eh, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, right. Yeah. So now one thing I did learn is you can you can do an annual subscription to the patreon and then that way henry gets that in a lump sum so that's true which is what i opted to do this year and will continue to do so bless you governor yeah so henry i i can't i can't say enough how excited i am for this book to be out i'm excited for you to have it come out and um, i'm looking forward to the injection of fervor it's going to give the hobby like the compendium did um it's, you know, again, you know, I, I, you know, use the term dean of the hobby and, and I'm, I'm being serious when I mean that. Uh, I don't think that there is anyone that has the, the depth and breadth of knowledge about the hobby that you do and anyone who is doing so much to preserve the history of the hobby and to oh bless you 
uh, you know, really encapsulate a significant portion of what the hobby means uh, like you are. You know, there's there's folks that are out there doing all sorts of great stuff. Don't get me wrong. But the way that you are approaching the. I, I detest this word, but it is appropriate because, well, I detest this word because many people don't use it properly. You are curating the history of the hobby for us. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's really, it's really great to see someone do it. And it really helps it. It's a really superb person like yourself. Oh, bless you. Aunt. Thank you, Joe. That's very kind of you. I think um, I don't know about Dean of the Hobby is is lovely. There's a, there's a kind of wonderful formality about that. I have to say though, uh, as kind of my last word, that one of the things that amused me enormously was a couple of weeks ago uh, at the Partisan Show. I was interviewed, video interviewed by Alex Southern, who runs the Storm of Steel Wargaming. Uh, vidcast you know he's on youtube uh who's doing really well and uh, he's one of my patrons he's a lovely guy and uh he'd interviewed me about the book because i had the book with me as you mentioned earlier and was taking it around the show in its plastic covering um and uh he captioned me as a wargaming guru which <laughs> really made me laugh I thought that's a fantastic thing. Uh, I would never dare to call myself any such thing. Like I would never dare to call myself the Dean of Wargaming. So um, I, I, it's, it's, it always amuses me and makes me smile when other people kind of attach these titles to me. Uh, but it's really lovely because I know that it's meant with affection, which is so nice, you know. Uh, and there's any number of other things that people might be calling me. So Dean of the Hobby, Dean of the Hobby or Wargaming Guru, do you know what? I'll take those and bank them you know that <laughs> uh, that suits me just fine i'll wear the damn badge <laughs> uh, so anyway thanks so much for having me on your show jay i really appreciate you giving me the time to talk about the book and certainly to talk about the book at such length without actually just starting on page one and reading the damn thing uh so that's been it's I'm really grateful for you giving me this opportunity, Jay. Oh, you're very welcome. I, I look forward to the audiobook version in in the very near future. <laughs> oh goodness, <laughs> that would be terrible. Be careful what you wish for, because the thing is, uh, I, I don't know if people know. I've actually have narrated a couple of audiobooks in, in the intervening period of time, and. Um, there's at the moment um, uh, uh, just a little aside. One of the things I'm doing for my Dungeons and Dragons players is I'm creating little kind of audio plays of what's going on behind the scenes, and you know, only just like ten or fifteen minutes each, feeding them kind of a bit of information to keep their wet their appetites, you know. And uh, the the I'm using. Um, there's a there's a brilliant British fantasy writer called Joe Abercrombie, who wrote a series called The Blade itself was the first one, and then there's a load since then. But his his audiobooks are narrated by a British guy called Stephen Pacey, who must be one of the most talented audiobook narrators I've ever heard, and his ability to do different voices and accents, just uh, you know, changing them from one to the other. It was, 
totally seamlessly is utterly fantastic the guy's hugely talented and obviously you know highly professional and practiced at it so i've been doing these little audio books stealing some of the voices of the characters from these uh, these you know uh, audio books i've been listening to and so who knows were i to narrate the wargaming compendium uh, for example all wargaming campaigns who knows whose voices might appear Maybe I could practice doing doing you, Jay, uh, reading one of the chapters. <laughs> so be careful what you wish for, mate. That's all I'll say. Well, that's that's quite all right. Let's let's uh, let's figure out a time to get together. I'm I'm sure the 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 start of the third book will be any time now, right? Because you've got <laughs> red and blue. You're going to have to have a green book to to keep it together. You know. I now this is where again I make a reference to a fantasy writer. Um, there's a, uh, there's a guy called Patrick Rothfuss who uh, wrote two, the first two books of his trilogy, and then has kept readers waiting ten years for the third book. So people just think of me as the Patrick Rothfuss of wargaming, right? <laughs> there may be other projects before the third book. And in any case, I, what would I write about? You know, in those two books, I've covered just about everything. So, I, you know, by all means, folks, send in your suggestions. But, you know, I will have to take them under advisement is what I would say, because I think I've had my fill of writing 520 something page war games books for the time being. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, we are looking at a whopper of an episode for sure, close to two and a half hours, which actually is not the longest episode I've had with you. So, but that, oh, is it not? I, I think I think that's a good that's a good point to call it. And Henry, thank yeah. you again so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule oh, to talk welcome. about your your latest work. As always, if the war game you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright Jay Arnold, 2022. Music courtesy of freemusicarchive.org.
The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold, 2022. Music courtesy of freemusicarchive.org.